0: What is a new year? And therefore, there is a new book that we get to look at together this morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 1. And if you're trying to remember where exactly is Micah, it comes right after Jonah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Before we look into God's Word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh Lord, this is Your Word. We confess that these words are inspired by You. That they are profitable, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that you have given them to us, that we might know you more, that we might know ourselves better, that we might know what you have done for us on the cross and how we can be forgiven of our sins through Jesus Christ. So we pray that as we look at your word, that you would work in us, Holy Spirit. Come and help us to understand your word. That we might not just read Your Word or study Your Word, but that we would understand Your Word and put into practice what Your Word says. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. English is an interesting language. I'm not really an English person, but I have to speak English. It's a very interesting language. And one of the interesting things about English is that there are so many words that sound the same but are spelled differently. These words are called homophones and you, we, we use them all the time. Think, for example, of heard and herd. I heard what you said. Or a herd of cattle. Well, they're spelled two different ways. Or think of see and see. I, I see what you're telling me. Or I'm going to go visit the Sea of Galilee. Again, two words that sound the same spelled differently. Or think of pear and pear. I have a pair of shoes. I wouldn't dream of eating that kind of pear. Again, two words that sound the same spelled totally different. One of my favorites and one of the ones that tripped me up in high school, perhaps it tripped you up, was there. How do you spell there? Well, Depends on how it's used in the sentence, right? It depends on the context. It could be there, as in the vanilla ice cream is over there. It could be there, like it's their ice cream. Or it could be there, they're going to get vanilla ice cream. Notice the theme of vanilla ice cream in each of these examples. Context matters in our conversations. A word or sentence taken out of context can have lasting repercussions. Even if it's just a bunch of big red X's all over English papers because there is not the right there in the context. When we come to the Bible, context matters too. It matters that what we read be understood in context. So as we begin to take a look at what Micah prophesies and writes in his book, It's important for us to know the context that Micah finds himself in. It's also important for us to consider why Micah's words to his original audience are important for us today. Why in the world, in 2023, with all of the stuff going on in our world, would we come to Micah? Why should we study Micah in 2023? Well, I have... A list of of, of reasons why Micah is important for us to study today. Number one, Micah provides commentary on the story of God's grand redemptive plan. God is on a mission from even before the worlds were created to redeem a people for himself. And the Bible chronicles that and Micah is prophesying in a particular time of God's redemptive plan, providing commentary on what God is doing in his redemptive plan. Secondly, Micah chronicles struggles we can relate to in our day. Oppression of vulnerable people, political corruption and unrest, moral decline and rampant idolatry. Those are all things that we can relate to in the day in which we live. Third, Micah helps us see God for who he truly is. That's a struggle for us. We are constantly having the lenses of our understanding of God fogged up and unable to see Him clearly. And Micah truly shows us, helps us to see God for who He truly is. Fourth, Micah highlights the sinfulness of man. Oftentimes we tend to think of ourselves as better than we actually are and Micah exposes the people of Israel for the corruptness and the sinfulness that often characterizes us as well. Fifth, Micah looks forward to the redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross. He's going to point us to that direction. And Jesus, even in His discussion with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, looks back and shows them how all of the prophets and writings were actually looking forward to what He accomplished on the cross. Micah also emphasizes the need for us to delight in and treasure God above all things. That amongst the high places and amongst the idolatry and amongst the corruptness, we must treasure and delight in God above all of those things. So really, Micah is important for us to study because it shows us the Gospel. It shows us who God is. It shows us who we are. It points forward to Christ for us to treasure Him and delight in Him. So what's Micah's main point? What is, what's he going to be driving at throughout the book? And as we look at Micah in depth in the coming months, This is going to be a theme we'll return to over and over again. Micah is exhorting the unfaithful people of God. And they are indeed unfaithful. He's exhorting the unfaithful people of God to follow their faithful God. In the midst of their unfaithfulness, God does not follow in unfaithfulness. He is a stark contrast of faithfulness to the people of Israel's unfaithfulness. So he's exhorting the unfaithful people of God to follow their faithful God, knowing that judgment will come on them if they don't. So we have the unfaithful people of God exhorted to follow their faithful God, because if they don't, judgment will come on them. Judgment as a matter of fact, does come on them. We have the record of history. We have hindsight being twenty twenty, and we are able to look back on history and see that they did not heed Micah's exhortation. Will we? That is our challenge. So this morning, we'll, we will look at the beginning of Micah and kind of try to establish some, some threads in Micah as an overview of the book. Because again, we need to understand the context in which Micah is written if we're to understand the message that we find in Micah. So, there would be three points this morning as we consider a rebellious nation and a redeeming God. That's the, the title of the sermon. A rebellious nation and a redeeming God. Point number one, Micah's context. Micah's context. Who is Micah? We don't really know a whole lot about Micah. We are told, if you look in Micah chapter 1, Verse 1, we read the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So we know that Micah is from Morasheth. This is a rural, flat area about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he's in the region of Jerusalem, which is significant. We'll see in a few minutes. He is in the region of Jerusalem. And it's interesting in verse 1 that Micah doesn't relay his call to be a prophet. He doesn't talk about how he became a prophet like we might find in some other prophetic writings in the Old Testament. Micah, though, begins with a bold statement of God's authority on his life. The Word of the Lord that came to Micah in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He saw these things. So, through visions and revelations, Micah is receiving divine revelation. Micah wants us to make no mistake about what we will read in this book. These words are not merely Micah's words. They are God's words. What else do we know about Micah? Well, there's, very else, there's not much else we know about Micah except the time in which he lived. He would have been a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea also prophets of the Lord and all three of them together are seeking to call the people to repent and turn back to God and to the covenant that God made with his people so what's going on in the world when Micah is prophesying what's what's on his news every morning when he turns on the news What's scrolling through his social media post? What are the problems that the people of Israel in those times are dealing with as Micah is prophesying? Well, Micah 1.1 gives us the time frame when Micah prophesies. He prophesies during the reign of three kings of Judah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he's a prophet for between 35 to 55 years, depending on when you think Micah began and ended his prophecy. 35 to 55 years. And during this time in history, the people of God are divided into two kingdoms. Israel and Judah. Well, how did we get to the Israelites being split into two kingdoms? If you're here this morning and you're new to the Bible, you may think of the people of Israel as being one people. But in this instance in Israel's history, they are split into two kingdoms. How did we get to that? Well, back earlier in the Old Testament, the people of God, when they're in Egypt, are comprised of 12 tribes, each one of them representing a son of Jacob. Jacob being the founder or the, or the very beginning of the Israelite nation. And as far back as the Exodus, the people of God, even as they are leaving Egypt, have trouble obeying God. These are the people who, after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, He comes down from the mountain and sees them worshiping a golden calf. These are the people who had to wait 40 years in the wilderness because they were a stubborn, stiff-necked people. These are the people that, even after Moses and Joshua died, they do whatever's right in their own eyes and God puts them through a lengthy period of being judged. Israel eventually demands a king and God gives them a king. The first king that they have, his name is Saul. God rejects him in his line because he, as the leader of Israel, as the man who should follow God, does not follow God. David becomes the next king. He is a man after God's own heart even in spite of his many sinful choices. And, and we, there are many of them that are chronicled in the Old Testament. After he passes, King Solomon takes his place. He's the wisest man in the world. Many of you are familiar with Solomon. And as he dies, the twelve tribes of Israel split. Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Jeroboam... Another man who, who becomes king of the ten tribes rules what we know as Israel or the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. Samaria is the capital of Israel. So if Micah is from Moresheth, 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, he is living, he grew up in the region, the kingdom of Judah. This split between Judah and Israel occurs about 180 years before the reign of Jotham, the first king that is detailed for us there in Micah 1.1. During that 180 years, there is much political unrest and moral failure and decline in both the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Some kings follow God and do what is right, but by and large, most of the kings do what is Evil in the sight of God. So, think with me, just, just on a broad scale, we have this large pattern over history of this compounding disobedience of the people of Israel going all the way back to when they were formed as a nation and, but even before Egypt. Not following God. Not following God. Not following God. Not following God. They split not following God still even up to the time of Jotham. Uzziah, Jotham's father, reigned for 52 years. So in, in the midst of this political tumult of the 180 years, we have 52 years where there is stability of one king in Judah. The problem is he was afflicted by leprosy. So by and large, he, he ruled remotely. He was a king, though, who did what was right in God's eyes. And he and Jotham basically co-ran the kingdom for much of Uzziah's life. Uzziah's reign is characterized by relative peace and an incredible economic prosperity. So on the heels of this 52 years of relative peace and economic prosperity, Uzziah dies. Jotham comes on the scene. And that's the, what's happening today in Micah's life. In summary, the book of Micah is written during a time of political uncertainty. We've had this king who's been our king for 52 years. Is Jotham going to last that long? What about the king after him? What about the king after him? The divided kingdom is in a state of moral decline and political uneasiness. Why? Because the Assyrians are gathering themselves together to invade Israel. There is a growing number of of hostile nations that want to defeat Israel and Judah. But those are kind of external things. Internally, amidst the economic prosperity, the powerful and elite are taking advantage of the poor and helpless. And Micah is going to detail that in his prophecies as we will see in the coming months. So who is Micah prophesying to? Obviously, he's prophesying to the people of God. Particularly, though, he is prophesying to the people of Judah. Israel's kings have usurped the royal line God set up through assassinations and coups. Jeroboam was the king that was over the ten tribes, but there's been assassinations, there's been overthrows, there's been coups, and The people of Israel have usurped the line that God put in place. God does not view these kings as legitimate rulers. And we can see that because Micah doesn't even cite the kings that are reigning in Israel while he's prophesying. He doesn't even acknowledge the fact that they are the kings in Israel. So Micah prophesies about future judgment for both Israel and Judah as a warning to the people of God to repent and return to him. We need that call to return, to repent, and return to God. But Micah's message is not just all judgment. Micah prophesies about judgment and hope. There are three oracles or three contained prophecies that make up the book of Micah. They're they're pretty clear divisions, and we'll be looking at those in future messages. They contain prophecies of judgment. God is coming. He's going to judge. Woe to these people. But on the other hand, He offers hope. The Lord warns Judah through Micah of Israel's coming exile. But God is not going to desert them. Though they have been amazingly unfaithful to God, God will be amazingly faithful to them. And He will redeem them. He will rescue them. He will gather a remnant out. So that's Micah's context. Consider with me Micah's God. Micah's God. Central to Micah's concern for the people of Judah and Israel is that they have a faulty, functional view of God. They know God, but their knowledge of Him doesn't affect their lives at all. They would be able to pass a religious knowledge test, but the indictment on the people of Israel is not what their head knowledge is. It's that their heart knowledge is faulty. You know these things about God, but you've rejected them, you've neglected them, and you've turned to these other things that are not God. So Micah unpacks the greatness, the goodness, and the righteousness of God throughout the book. And this starts in a rather unexpected way. Look again at Micah chapter 1, verse 1. We read the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. What do we learn about God in verse 1 other than the fact that he came to Micah and spoke through him? Well, Micah's name is a significant clue about what he's seeking to do about God in this book. Micah's name means, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like Yahweh? Micah intentionally uses his name at the beginning and then a pun at the end of his letter in Micah chapter 7 to bring us back to this question Who is a God like Yahweh? Who is a God like you? And our answer will be when we get to the end of his letter there is no one else. Remotely, even in the same county that can compare to God. God stands alone. Before we get to Micah chapter 7, though, let's take a look at several places in this book where we see God exalted and lifted up. We don't have to go far. Look at Micah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. These are the first words that God speaks to the people Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place." Here we see God exalted in a terrible and horrific way. The Lord is in His holy temple. He is is called to be a witness against the people of the earth. He's coming out of His place. A reference to judgment. And He will come down and tread on the high places. These verses point us to the righteousness and justice of God. He is holy and cannot tolerate sinfulness. God's people have violated the covenant that he made with them. They have usurped the rule that he has over them, and they have turned to serve other gods and other passions and other things. So God must judge that which is wicked. We see this also in Micah chapter 3. Flip over to Micah chapter 3 with me. Micah chapter 3. In verse 9, this is God's declaration to Jacob and to Israel of their transgression. Micah chapter 3, verse 9 and following reads this, Now, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest." So God must judge that which is wicked. He is going to judge that which is wicked. However, Micah doesn't just stop with God as being an only an angry and judging God. Flip over to Micah chapter 4 and look with me at verse 6. Micah chapter 4 look at with me at verse 6. In that day says the Lord, I will assemble the lame I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Here we see the promise of God rescuing and redeeming His people. God is exalted for gathering the weak and the outcast, and He is to be exalted because He will reign eternally over this remnant of people that are called out. What is significant about these two things? What do they point us to about God? They show us God's care and faithfulness of His people that God cares for and is faithful to His people. It's not up to the lame and outcast to gather themselves to God. He will gather them. This demonstrates what a good and faithful shepherd He is to His people. We see this back in Micah 2, verse 12. There is this promise, "...I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob." I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Well, who's going to lead all of those sheep? The Lord is going to be that good shepherd. Not only that, but we also see in these verses the eternal kingdom that God will establish and rule over. Look with me also in Micah chapter 7, and we see uh, continued... Examples of this in Micah chapter 7. Micah 7.7 7 says this, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her now. She will be trampled down like mud in the streets. There is a vindication that will take place because God's kingdom will be established forever. Another passage that we see in Micah that speaks of how great God is is Micah chapter 5. This is a familiar passage that we are accustomed to considering in December, even later in November. But look with me at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In these verses, Micah foretells the coming Messiah. In in the kingdom of Judah, the city of Bethlehem was an afterthought. But here, God points to the shepherding and ruling being manifested through the One who will be the ruler of Israel. Notice again the emphasis on how the Messiah will, will rule in splendor and majesty. Look in verse 2. He will be the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This is not a new guy coming on the scene to be ruler. No, this is the one who has ruled in eternity past and will continue to rule eternity into the future. Verse 4. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. But not only will the Messiah rule in splendor and majesty, he will shepherd with care and compassion. Notice again in verse 4 he shall stand and feed his flock. They shall abide. That speaks to the permanence and the satisfaction that they gain from his feeding, from his care. That is, this is not a stop in, get fed, and move on. No, they stay. Because these are not just wandering sheep. No, they will be His sheep that He will care for and that He will shepherd. Chapters 4 and 5 contain powerful prophecies for the people of Israel and what will take place immediately, but also promises for us as we await the return of Christ. Finally, though, look with me at Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, look with me at verses 18 through 20, the last three verses of the book. In verse 18, you'll see the pun. Who is a God like you? So Micah begins the letter, My name is Micah, which means, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like Yahweh? And he ends the book with a meditation on Who is a God like you? Notice the progression of what we're told about God in these verses. There's six things that Micah works out for us about who God is. God pardons iniquity, God passes over the transgression of his people. He doesn't sweep it under the rug, he deals with it and has mercy on them in passing over their transgressions. Third, God does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Fourth, God will often have compassion on His people. Fifth, God will finally and decisively be victorious over the iniquities and sins of His people. Sixth, God will be faithful to do what He has promised for the descendants of Abraham and Jacob. Each of those things are explicitly stated in Micah seven eighteen 18-20. Micah's description of God in this letter is breathtaking. Who is a God like our God? But more than that, Micah's description of God in this letter is exactly what Jesus is now doing and will accomplish in the future. There's there's three things, basically, that God is presented as here in Micah He's presented as a judge who is executing righteousness because of His holiness. He is presented as a shepherd who will lead His people, and He is presented as a king who will rule forever. All three of those things are things that Jesus does or will do in the future. Jesus Christ will judge the world. John chapter 5, verse 21 says, "...For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will." For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. The God that we see in Micah is Jesus, he is the judge. But He is also the great shepherd of the sheep. John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives His life for the sheep. Hebrews thirteen twenty. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. Revelation 17.14, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. God, who is the great shepherd, is Jesus. Jesus is the exalted King of kings. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, Revelation 17.14 says. So, the God who is the exalted King of kings is Jesus He is right now ruling and reigning. And He will one day continue that rule and reign from this time forth and forevermore. how are we to respond to the God that Micah records for us? How are we to respond to this question, who is a God like you? If you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, you are the subject of God's terrible wrath. That is a reality that Micah is going to show us. That if you have no hope in Christ, you are destined to be the subject of God's terrible wrath. Friend, you can find forgiveness for your sins. You can find adoption into God's family if you will repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and come to Christ for salvation. Friend, you are no safer than someone dangling over a fiery volcano. God wants to save you. Can I encourage you, if you have never trusted in Christ, come talk with me. Come talk with Pastor Harris. Talk with someone around you after the service this morning. Let them share with you how you do not have to be an object of wrath. You can be a child of God by trusting in what Christ has done on the cross in His finished work. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, does your life reflect it? And this gets at the heart of Micah's message. So we've seen Micah's context, Micah's God, finally consider with me Micah's message. Micah's message. As we consider what God reveals to us in Micah, and we consider the context Micah finds himself in, what is Micah's message that endures? Not just for God's people in those days, but for us in 2023. Throughout the book of Micah, God's people are exhorted to respond to Micah's prophecy in at least two ways. In Micah 1, 5-7, this is an example, particularly in Micah 5, 1-7, and other places throughout the book, they are commanded to forsake idols and follow God. God has an indictment against the people of Israel and against the people of Judah. And what is it? It's that they have committed idolatry against Him. So the people are exhorted to forsake idols and follow God. The second thing that they are to respond to Micah's prophecy in doing is to put away arrogance and live humbly in submission before God. To put away arrogance and live humbly in submission before God. Turn back with me, if you would, to Micah 6. Micah chapter 6. And look with me at verses 6 through 8. Micah 6, 6 through 8. God's word says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That is how Micah is anticipating. That's what he wants the people of God to respond to God's prophecy of judgment in. He wants them to respond by humbly submitting and putting themselves under God's authority. So as we contemplate application for ourselves, can I just encourage you to remember Jesus Christ? If we want to be people who humbly submit to God, we must remember Jesus Christ. Remember that outside of Him, you have no hope. Without His grace, you lack much. Saints, look to Christ. Look to Him with eager and exclusive devotion. Remember Jesus Christ. Retired brother or sister, how can you utilize these years of your life to pursue Christ? Have you taken your foot off the gas? You've you've put your time in in the workplace and now you're retired and and you kinda are in coast mode until you die or Christ comes back. How can you redeem your days and keep idols from creeping into your life? How can you make being faithful to God each day a priority in your life? Kids and teens, let me have your attention for just a minute. How can you set patterns in your life now that will help you treasure God exclusively? How can you exclusively serve God as opposed to God and a bunch of other things? You're not too young to do that. God is better than any game, Lego, or gadget. The beauty of Christ is He never fades or wears out. You will never outgrow Him. Get to know God now. Read His Word now. Every day, spend time reading and being in God's Word. What are ways that all of us can be tempted to substitute a fake God for the true and living God? All of us are tempted that way. Single brother or sister, are you tempted to construct a relationship or, con- or career advancement in the place of God? Do you think that, that some relationship or some step up in your career will give you more happiness or satisfaction than can be found in Jesus Christ? Remember Jesus Christ. Brothers, how are you tempted to replace God? Will the next gun or the newest piece of gear or a sports team make you happier than Jesus Christ? Those are real temptations. I know many of you coming in this morning were super happy with the outcome of last night's game. How does that happiness compare to the happiness that you have in Jesus Christ? As I look forward to baseball season, is the happiness that I'm experiencing anticipating baseball season? How does that compare to the happiness that I have in Jesus Christ? Sister, what creeps into your life and threatens to replace God? Does your Amazon wish list or desire for approval or pursuits that preoccupy you threaten to divert your joy and satisfaction away from God? These are all ways that we can be tempted to substitute a fake God in for the true and living God. And before you know it, we've fallen into the same place the Israelites are in. Church, do we treasure God together? As a whole, when we gather, do we treasure God together? Do we delight in His Word? Do we delight in Him? When you come to church, what are you most excited about? Is it the social interaction? Is it the nostalgia? Is it the singing? Can you echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 63 when he says, O God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh longs for You in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Church, Micah's exhortation to us is to faithfully serve God and to delight in Him. So let's do that together. When we gather together, let us make much of Jesus Christ. May God help us to faithfully follow Him and walk humbly before Him until Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are a kind, generous, faithful God. You are holy and righteous and you must judge sin. But thank you that you promise that you promise that you will not forsake us if we are yours. Thank you that you are our God. Who is a God like you? We confess this morning that there is no God like you. Help us to be awed by you. May we be driven to serve you and to be faithful to you and to follow you exclusively. Would you help us to shut out the noise and distractions of the world as we seek to follow you and to pursue you? Who is a God like you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.